Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Grand Rounds. Uh, this is a special Grand Rounds. This is the seventh uh, Robert Greenstein Grand Rounds that we've had, and I'll uh, talk about Bob in just a little bit. A uh, couple of announcements that I have, uh, you could see here, uh, the virtual evening workshop on October 21st with our own Mel uh, Melanie Collins and Jessica Hollenbach. Uh, the, the title is The New Asthma Guideline, Integrating Guidelines into Practice to Prepare for Respiratory Season. It's going to be very important as the kids are back in school, respiratory season is in full force hopefully not too severe with influenza, hopefully not too severe with COVID in the next coming months. So please uh, attend that particular conference. Again, this is the honorary Greenstein lecture. But before I start, I just want to say that a couple of things. You know, the pandemic here in Connecticut is under reasonably good control. And I saw there was an article in the Hartford Current this morning. The title is, and you can look it up uh, by our scientific writer, Alex Putterman, who's, who talks about the study calls Connecticut's safest state amid, amid COVID-19 pandemic. Pretty cool, and, and it's uh, based on vaccination rate, which is very high, positivity rate, which is dropping, hospitalization rate, which has dropped significantly. I know at the Yukon uh, Health Center, there were only three patients yesterday, which is the lowest they've had in about three months. Uh, the death rate has dropped, and the estimated transmission rate, and, we, and our positivity rate is less than 2%. Uh, so Connecticut is uh, number one in the country in, in this area, and, and, that, and one of the main reasons is because people are vaccinated following the rules. Now, if we can get our kids vaccinated, especially the 5 to 11-year-olds, as soon as the vaccine becomes, it becomes available, it would be absolutely fantastic. And we are working here at Connecticut Children's uh, with, with our colleagues in our clinically integrated network uh, in, in a campaign. Hopefully, we'll communicate to you very shortly of how Connecticut Children's will partner with our pediatricians to provide uh, COVID vaccination uh, in a way that is simple for 5 and 11-year-olds, and we'll keep you posted as soon as that happens. Um, this morning, it, uh, we honor Dr. Robert Greenstein, if you can show the next slide, Nicole. Uh, and uh, here's Bob uh, with his uh, great uh, smile. Um, Bob passed away in 2018, and, and some of you, some of the newer crowd uh, that is joining may not know uh, Bob Greenstein. Uh, some of, of the, most of you who are joining probably obviously did know him. And uh, this lecture was uh, created in, in recognition of his multiple contributions to the healthcare of children established um, uh, in 2015. Uh, and this yearly lecture uh, really celebrates Bob's formidable stewardship and exemplary accomplishments in pediatrics. And it reminds us of his legacy uh, as a caring pediatrician, a teacher, mentor, innovative leader, especially in newborn screening and genetic counseling. Um, Bob was one of those special uh, group of pediatricians, physicians who had the courage um, and vision to embark upon a career back then in the brand new field of what is now medical genetics and, and genomics. It seems like, you know, everyone is a geneticist now, uh, but uh, he was passionate about the emerging role of genetics in medicine, and he dedicated his entire career to delivering compassionate care to individuals and family, families affected by genetic conditions. He was a great teacher, a great mentor for the next generation to medical geneticists, and enthusiastically brought up the power of genetic and genomic medicine to the public. Uh, there are many, many contributions uh, that, that uh, Bob brought to us over the years. Uh, I knew him. I knew him well. Uh, it was always great to see him, and uh, and and uh, remember him uh, very distinctly at our 50th uh, Department of Pediatrics anniversary a few years back, where he where he came. Uh, although he was wheelchair bound, I uh, had the smile in his face uh, to see the department celebrating the 50th uh, anniversary was something that I will never forget. Yeah, and he, he asked, when, when can we have the next celebration? And, uh, and so, so Bob, uh, wherever you are right now, uh, you know, rest in peace, my friend. And uh, this lecture honors and celebrates your life uh, and those of, of us that have remained here will continue to that uh, as long as we can. Uh, now, to introduce our speaker today, who is, uh, is another uh, product of Connecticut Children's, uh, uh, Dr. Bruckner, who's uh, now at Brown, uh, is another product of Connecticut Children's, Dr. Joe Tucker, who is uh, our lead uh, geneticist. 
here at Connecticut Children's, and I think you will be pleased to have uh, Bill back. I think he was the sixth lecturer, and now he's the seventh. I think he's becoming staple. Everyone liked him. He's a great, uh, great presenter, and it's just right down the street in uh, in Providence. I told him if he wants to come up here, be permanently up here. We certainly would will welcome him uh, with his expertise. So, Joe, can you uh, take it on and introduce uh, Bill, and then we'll pass the slides on to Dr. Bruckner for his grand rounds. Thank you, Juan. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you for your attention. I'm delighted to be able to uh, have Dr. William Brucker with us again this year for his second uh, Greenstein lecture. Um, he's a very dynamic speaker, so I know uh, you'll all enjoy this. Um, he's quite accomplished. Uh, he has his undergraduate education from Brown University and also his doctorate in chemistry. Uh, he started his medical training at uh, Warren Alpert Medical School and continued with pediatric residency here at Connecticut Children's um, and then went on to um, additional training at Boston Children's, uh, both in general medical genetics and in biochemical genetics. And along the way, he's managed to accumulate uh, numerous awards, including uh, Howard Hughes Medical Institute Fellowship, uh, Roy's Fellowship, Barry Goldwater, Excellence in Education Scholarship, and many others. Um, his CV has a quite extensive list of peer-reviewed uh, articles that he's written and um, but uh, maybe most importantly he's he's just a, a wonderful person and a, a great guy to be around so uh, please give your attention to uh, Dr. Brucker this morning thank you thank you so much for that nice introduction and for having me back again to talk about uh, porphyria today porphyrins are actually uh, some of the most interesting molecules that that there are and uh, it's their chemistry is, you know, some of the most interesting that there is. They're near and dear to my own heart um, because I, I used to work on porphyrin mimics uh, for industrial purposes uh, to try to make cheaper forms of things like nylon. Um, uh, but uh, I sort of came to really enjoy them a lot during that time. And they're one of my very favorite things to talk about. Uh, this is actually a really good Halloween, you know, talk uh, because of a lot of the myths and legends that have been associated with the porphyrias throughout the years. I think it's important to know that we describe these as diseases now. They've been around as long as people have been around. And one of the strongest desires in the human mind is to try to make a connection between, you know, what's seen in some kind of a cause. So they're sort of the subject of a lot of early myth and legend, both of the vampire and the werewolf. Uh, so I, I don't have anything to disclose. I don't have any, um, you know, consulting or industrial work uh, that, that I do. I do mention a couple companies and a couple resources from a couple companies, but they're one of many different options and they're not meant to influence you to use them just to tell you what's out there. Uh, so the general goal of the talk was kind of to describe the categories of porphyria and the general symptoms. In the sort of the real world, that's a lot more practical than kind of enzyme disease associations. Uh, the chemistry of metals in general and the chemistry of the porphyrins, though seemingly kind of esoteric, is actually pretty important to understand exactly why they can be as dangerous as they are. Uh, and then to go over a case of both uh, an acute porphyria and a cutaneous porphyria um, in, in some detail. And both were cases that I was present for as a consulting fellow. And then if we have uh, additional time, I have some bonus slides uh, 
basically it'll run through the other porphyrias with the length of kind of the average haiku. Um, so essentially porphyrins, when they accumulate, they accumulate in all the tissues and fluids of the body, the urine, the stool, uh, the blood, but even in tissues that you wouldn't think like the teeth. Uh, the red discoloration of the teeth is uh, usually a common physical exam finding of a lot of the different porphyrias. But in the old days, the red discolor it would give them was sort of gave rise to the the vampire legend and long before you know vampires you know portrayed on television as you know 30 year olds and, and models in high school they were associated with uh, uh carrion and uh and, and corpses that were reanimated um so the persistent uh, disfigurement and avoidance of light uh, associated with the cutaneous porphyrias was one of the the uh, the influences for the vampire legend and I've actually even heard um, from uh, uh, experts in the field of porphyria that based upon statues of Lad the Impaler there's some speculation that he himself uh, the origin for Dracula may have actually been affected by a cutaneous porphyria, which actually has a relatively large, um, uh, higher incidence than most in uh, Eastern European individuals. Uh, one of the things that can be associated with the cutaneous porphyrias are those where porphyrins are in the skin, get activated by light and irritate the skin, um, is the response of the body to, to, to cause hair growth, I think probably to block those areas a little bit more from the sun. So pretty pronounced hypertrichosis is a secondary physical exam finding that you can see in a lot of the porphyrias. And that's supposedly helped give rise to the, the legend that, that someone would be a werewolf. But now we know that they're porphyrias. Um, and uh, those are terrifying topics, but I think few things are more terrifying to residents and um, uh, medical students than the porphyria pathway. Uh, so the, the long and the short of it is that all cells in the body require porphyrins um, for a wide variety of different reasons. Uh, so the, the enzyme uh, ALAS1 or a, uh, aminolevulinic acid synthase is always active in all tissues of the body. Uh, and once you, you make uh, aminolevulinic acid, you're basically committed to making you know, the porphyrin. So once the cycle starts, um, it's owed itself to complete Otherwise, you start to build up intoxicants. And, uh, you know, a more nasty poison than amino, aminolevulinic acid, there never was. Uh, it's a very significant neurotoxin. And if in high enough quantities can demyelinate neurons and uh, leads to uh, transient paralysis during episodes uh, that can sometimes become permanent if you suffer enough of them. There's some thought that it rep, it's kind of similar chemically uh, to GABA and it can interfere with the GABAergic nervous system in the serotonergic nervous system. And that might be why there's such an association with altered mental status like psychosis and depression in altered mood when these levels are very high. It's also a carcinogen. So if it gets to be at high enough levels, especially in the liver, then uh, you're actually at risk for liver cancer. So the more episodes where you have increases in ALA concentration, uh, the, the higher risk you are of developing hepatocellular carcinoma. So it's important to identify uh, some porphyrias because there's an increased risk of cancer, but also because there's an increased risk of neurological issues. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the enzyme ALAS2 is actually an enzyme that's meant to kick this pathway into overdrive in the two tissues where porphyrins are needed the most. One is the blood, where the porphyrins are used to make the heme and hemoglobin. The other is the liver, um, where the porphyrins are used to make the cytochromes that are responsible for a lot of environmental detoxification. The adrenal glands also actually have a pretty high population of porphyrins that they use in steroid hormone synthesis. Now there's a couple ways to kind of look at this pathway. 
Um, one way is that, that there's a lot of you know complicated names and complicated enzymes. Uh, the other way is to see it just about every single step there is a metabolic disease. That means any of these intermediates build up, they can poison you. Um, so the key to understanding metabolic medicine is that you know if you can control the flow of the intoxicant, you can control the disease. And if you lose control of the intoxicant, you lose control of the disease. So the key way to control the pathway is to try to prevent it from being turned on as much as possible. Um, so the, uh, um, uh, the, the ALA uh, uh, S2 and the S1 enzymes are inhibited by uh, hemin. So that's usually the, the detoxifying medicine you give in a crisis for the acute porphyrias, and it turns that pathway off and the symptoms resolve. Um, the, uh, the other thing to know about this pathway is um, after uh, hydroxymethylbilane, uh, that's kind of um, uh, sort of like a, a linear molecule. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the molecule is basically linked into a ring. So once you get to form uroporphyrinogen 3, you basically have the ability to absorb light very well. And then when that deposits in the skin, you get photosensitivity. So um, uh, after uh, uroporphyrinogen 3 is made, then you have the um, photosensitive porphyrias. And before that, you, you have the acute porphyrias that are mostly poisoning. And there's a little bit of middle ground between the two. Uh, porphyrins basically accumulate in all fluids of the body, and some of them are named based upon where they're found. Uh, uro uh, is for urine. So uroporphyrinogen 3 is something you find in the urine. Uh, copros is for stool, and that's something that uh, you, you find a lot in the stool of individuals. So you can test the blood, the urine, and the stool in order to diagnose the porphyria. Uh, one of the things I think that makes it complicated is sort of the, the fact that there's numbers associated with the names, um, but there's some logic to that. The uh, uroporphyrinogen 3 is a specific isomer that occurs when proper enzymatic steps are made. Uh, hydroxymethylbilane is so reactive that it'll, it'll form a ring all on its own, but it'll be an improper isomer. So that's where you get sort of the, the ones, uroporphyrinogen 1, copropyrinogen 1. The, uh, the suffix uh, inogen uh, actually has its own meaning, and that means reduced. Um, so anything that has an inogen, you know, is going to have to be oxidized. Um, so first you sort of have your initial processing steps where you close the ring, you process it by decarboxylating it, and, um, and then uh, you eventually go through several oxidizing steps until you kind of stick a metal in the closed ring with uh, ferrochelatase. I think some of the myths and legends that are... Uh, you know, sort of associated with porphyria is uh, one is that most of them are autosomal dominant, which means you see them in every generation in a family. And there's a 50% chance that someone, um, you know, who is uh, the son or daughter of an affected person would be affected themselves. And that, that's actually kind of a myth. The autosomal dominant aspect is true, but the penetrance, which means if you have a disease causing mutation, that you'll actually express these is actually pretty low. Um, some of them have penetrance of less than 10%. So a family history doesn't really help you that much. And some of them, like um, uh, Porphyria cutanea tarda, which is the most common uh, of the, all the porphyrias, is one that you kind of mutate yourself into getting uh, with other processes associated with the liver, like hemochromatosis or estrogen therapy or malignancy that actually is not very heritable. So those are some of the unusual things about porphyria. One of them is generally, these are actually not often diseases of children, but more or less diseases of adults with many onsets really not happening until after 30. There are some exceptions to that rule. And those are the pediatric cases that we'll cover today. 
Uh, so heme is incredibly poisonous. And uh, a good example of environmental heme intoxication is actually the malarial parasite that's forced to live in high heme environments and actually has to polymerize it to a hemozoan in order to survive inside the red blood cell. And that hemozoan uh, uh, inhibition by quinine was one of the very first anti-malarials to use heme toxicity against those parasites. As I said before, kind of the, 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 the methodology of genetics and metabolism is changing where once you really had to use chemistry to form a trail to take you back to a gene that you would then confirm. So the workups of porphyrias through chemical means was actually somewhat complicated and often involved checking all of these different fluids at different times. Um, now, uh, there's actually commercial panels that'll look at all the genes associated with porphyrias. And you can, if you have a question, is this a porphyria? In two to three weeks, you can have your answer, which is maybe even shorter than the time to get an analyte result back. Um, so there's two general categories of porphyria. Uh, there's the cutaneous porphyrias, which are when the ring is fully clothed. Uh, you have an X-linked protoporphyria, congenital erythropoietic porphyria, porphyria cutanea tarda, and um, erythropoietic uh, protoporphyria. Erythropoietic protoporphyria is actually the most common porphyria in the pediatric population. Um, and there is a, a myth that the only type of photosensitivity that you have is really um, this kind of ulcerative scarring photosensitivity. Some photosensitivity patterns almost look like someone's been you know, having an allergic response, that they've been stung by a bee. Acute uh, porphyrias are basically the result of being poisoned um, by alpha uh, uh, aminolevulinic acid. Uh, and that's uh, ALA dehydratase porphyria, acute intermittent porphyria, hereditary coproporphyria, and variegate porphyria. And of them, ALA dehydratase porphyria is the most common in, in children. And it's actually not the early kids that get this, but the adolescents who start to have a high need for steroid synthesis in puberty. So adolescent females um, in young adult females, they're really kind of the target population for that disease. Acute porphyrias present with nausea, vomiting, um, abdominal pain, uh, transient weaknesses and uh, entanglings in the hands and feet that worsen during disease and get better afterwards. The demand for heme drives the production of the intoxicants. So shut that off and you can break a crisis. Um, uh, the, the catabolic or fasted state actually causes heme to be broken down. So your body tries to make more. Then you end up in this vicious cycle of being poisoned, vomiting, not eating, going into further fasting and making more poison. So giving calories and sugar is just as good as giving um, a heman. And usually you give both together. And heman is something you give by IV. Uh, one of the most important things is to eliminate things that can cause upregulation of the cytochromes like drugs. Uh, so things that can like progesterone is a pretty uh, a common uh, um, supplemental OCP uh, that's given um, the progestins. And those are really big heme inducers and can cause a crisis. Uh, the key analytes to get in an acute porphyria are urine, aminolevulinic acid, and uh, urine porphoblinogen. Uh, heavy metals like lead uh, can sometimes induce these states, but it's a little bit less common. Lead interferes with uh, ALA dehydratase and uh, ferrochelatase, so it kind of hits in two different ways, uh, but it has uh, elevated ALA levels. But the symptomatology is a little bit different. You know, generally, um, the acute porphyrias um, are when you're making a lot of steroid hormones, which is usually not in early childhood. So a, a three-year-old who has kind of chronic pain and abdominal pain is, is not really kind of the usual person. It's more of an adolescent and usually an adolescent female. Uh, the cutaneous porphyrias, the treatments associated with really keeping people away from what triggers the, the, the damage, which is the sun. 
Um, reflective sunscreens are better because they reflect everything. Absorptive sunscreens don't actually give you any protection at all because they absorb wavelengths below what would activate the typical porphyria. Uh, you can have photosensitivity that's delayed and doesn't onset until about 24 hours after you're actually exposed to the sun at all. You tend to give beta carotene to get in the membranes of the cells to scavenge some of the free radicals and then filters for people's lights at home, generally around 400 nanometers. Um, uh, phototherapy is about 400 nanometers too. So some children with cutaneous porphyrias um, uh, can actually be detected uh, during uh, workups for um, or treatment for neonatal jaundice. Uh, the photosensitivity patterns are not always what you would think. So if there's a history of some photosensitivity, then, you know, in, in childhood, a porphyria is reasonable to consider. The two tissues that really need the porphyrin, porphyrins the most are uh, the liver and the blood. And the liver needs them for the cytochromes. Uh, so uh, the, the liver takes a lot of the beating from uh, amino levulinic acid accumulation. And that, that's why you're really ris at risk for hepatocellular carcinoma with a lot of these. The erythropoietic porphyrias, generally what can happen is a transfusion dependent anemia. So the blood effects, uh, especially um, effects with uh, erythropoiesis in the toxicity of these heme intermediates in the marrow is a big, big problem as well. So you can see those with some of the porphyrias. Uh, uh, to kind of understand the porphyrins a little bit better, even just a quick brush through some of the uh, the chemistry of the metals is actually pretty helpful in why we need porphyrins and why they do what they do and why they're so incredible. Um, so medical metals can do incredible things uh, and uh, things that organic chemistry just can't do on its own. Uh, they can react pretty much in any direction because they're an attractive sphere and something that's negatively charged is really the only bait they need. Uh, you know, carbon-carbon bonds and carbon-hydrogen bonds are, are pretty much like metal. You can't bend them, you can't break them easily, um, but metals can do it with ease, uh, unlike anything else. Uh, they can do complex organic reactions that you wouldn't usually think of, and they're really important for coordination reactions, like bending certain proteins into shape, kind of like this zinc finger, um, which is used to interact with DNA. Uh, zinc is actually a pretty important coordinating enzyme uh, in uh, holding the enzyme structures together for a couple different uh, heme synthetic enzymes like ALA dehydratase and ferrochelatase. This is what lead displaces and interacts with when it's causing uh, inhibition of uh, ferrochelatase and ALA dehydratase. Uh, metals are actually phenomenally dangerous if they're kind of not caged by a porphyrin. If they're allowed to accumulate freely, they interact with oxygen and create free radicals. Any disease of metal accumulation like Wilson disease or hemochromatosis generally causes tissue damage wherever they accumulate through progressive free radical generation. Radicals are basically unpaired electrons that react with any uh, electron-rich substance at the speed of light. Um, you know, they're the closest thing you can have to a buzzsaw inside of a cell, and they'll, they'll tear um, electron-rich lipid membranes of the mitochondria, uh, the endoplasmic reticulum, in the cell membrane right, right apart. Um, so they're, they're kind of like the wild animals of the, uh, uh, the, 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 the chemical world. Uh, so metals, you know, in their free state are very dangerous. But if you can harness their power, yeah, phenomenal ability, you know, can be ours and is. Uh, so this is basically what we use to harness the metals in general. Uh, the heme ring on the, the, the right and then kind of the corn ring on the left. This is kind of the uh, structure a lot of you guys would probably know. This is uh, hemoglobin, and the coordinating power of iron is used to, to carry uh, ligand oxygen to tissues that need it. This is some of the radical chemistry that uh, metals can do. This carbon of methylmalonic acid was basically snapped off and stuck in the middle uh, to make uh, succinic acid. And how does that happen? That's almost an impossible reaction to do by any other means but controlled radical chemistry. And uh, the compound that does that is uh, B12, cobalamin, which is a cobalt, you know, caged uh, in, a, in a corn ring 
to you know do our bidding. Um, one of the hardest reactions to do in all of chemistry is uh, what they call a selective carbon hydrogen activation. So if you have a bunch of carbon hydrogen bonds and you supply enough energy to perform an oxidation at one, you actually perform an oxidation at all of them. So if you give enough energy to these uh, uh, reactions, what you get is uh, you burn them and uh, you, you combust them. So the ability to oxidize a single carbon hydrogen bond is actually one of the most difficult reactions that you can possibly do, but it's done by the body every second of the day. Uh, and it's incredible. And you'll notice in uh, kind of the synthesis of steroid hormones, that's exactly what's going on. You see all these, you know, little OHs appear where there were just carbon hydrogen bonds before and not, nothing's being combusted. This is sort of some of the power of the bioinorganic chemistry uh, that really only metal porphyrin uh, complexes can do. Um, uh, and the adrenal synthesis is really one of the biggest triggers for porphyrin need and upregulation. And also something that I think um, people don't always put together with uh, a porphyrias is they're actually pharmacogenomic diseases. So the ability to perform that single hydrocarbon oxidation uh, is one of the most important things to clearing drugs from the body. That's basically the basis of first pass metabolism. So drugs that upregulate cytochromes are something that can kick somebody into a crisis. People have been trying to use this for a long time in industrial chemistry and has actually been called the holy grail of catalysis. And if you, you know, discover a way to, to, to you know, to adapt this uh, to industrial means endless riches and, and jewels uh, would, would be yours. But tragically, most who pursue it are left uh, penniless and insane. And really the biggest problem is the structure of the, the, the heme itself, um, which is actually no different than anything else that's being oxidized uh, by, by these metals. So it's like trying to keep a wild animal in a cage made of meat. Uh, the more the reaction is done by the cytochrome, the faster uh, the enzyme itself is destroyed and the more heme you need to make. So if you're giving somebody, um, you know, either endogenous substances like steroids that need a lot of modulation um, or, you know, drugs that require this type of metabolism, then you're inducing someone's porphyrin pathways to go into overdrive and intoxicants to be made. Another thing that metal uh, porphyrin complexes do almost better than anything uh, you know, known to man is absorb light. So this is actually the structure of, uh, of, of uh, uh, chlorophyll and magnesium is the caged metal in this, this case. And this is what's used to capture light energy from the environment for plants to convert into chemical energy. And uh, basically the, the concept is there's this kind of esoteric thing called the Beer-Lambert law where the capacity for something to absorb is related to its concentration, but also something called the extinction coefficient. Uh, and the extinction coefficient of these medical, metal, metal porphyrin complexes is some of the highest you know, known to man. So if there's any light at all, uh, you need almost no concentration of uh, heme uh, you know, metal complex to absorb all of it. So you need almost no concentration of, of those things to be seen. And this is something that we see every day when very little amounts of blood in a fluid will actually seem like quite a bit in sputum, you know, in, in urine, uh, you name it, in water. Um, and that, that's kind of the basis of it. No, it's an interesting fact uh, in terms of chemistry. It's what makes the photosynthetic aspects or the, not um, the, the, the photosensitivity aspects of porphyrins so dangerous because if you're out and even just a little bit of light, those molecules are going to absorb it. They're going to get active and they're going to start destroying things. And the mechanism of destruction for the porphyrins is basically they absorb light energy, they get excited, and then they pass that energy on 
to susceptible species that can then become radical. It kind of like an internet troll. They get upset about something, they go online, and then they influence people into becoming radical and angry. It's the, the same kind of thing. The, the porphyrin gets excited, and then it causes oxygen to become excited and become radical. Um, so this is a true story I'm about to tell you of a porphyria case that uh, I, I was a part of, and it's such a crazy story, I can't even believe I'm telling most of it, but it's all true. So we were contacted by the mother of a 10-year-old boy um, who had had a disastrous uh, vacation in Aruba. Um, the family lived in uh, northern New Hampshire, just about on the Canadian border. Um, uh, and uh, uh, they were really concerned that this photosensitivity would affect a potential baseball career that their son would have. And really before this vacation to Aruba, where he demonstrated pretty significant photosensitivity, there is never really, you know, too much of an issue with his health. But uh, they basically uh, went on a vacation to Aruba. They went out in the sun and really within 48 hours, his hands became red and swollen uh, and, and so did his feet. He couldn't bend his fingers. He said it kind of stung like getting stung like a bee, but it also itched. His feet got so swollen, they couldn't even put them in shoes. Um, he had to stay in the house uh, basically for the duration of the vacation. And then after they went home, uh, eventually his symptoms resolved and he was a lot better. And uh, what it was about Aruba versus New Hampshire was sort of a mystery as to how uh, things happened. Uh, and so they, they kind of figured maybe this was a one-off thing. And then they took him back to Aruba. And the second time, it was even worse. But they kind of planned for it. Um, so they said he's really itchy. Uh, they talked to his pediatrician. And they decided to kind of give him Benadryl before he went out into the sun. And they, they gave him an absorbent sunscreen to use to kind of slather him in in case there was some sort of a phototoxic, photosensitive reaction. But what, what happened was he had no protection at all, and it was even worse. His hands swelled up more than before, his feet swelled up more than before, and he actually ended up with a scar uh, on his forehead. Uh, but really no blistering, um, you know, no scarring, uh, nothing like that. It was this explosive swelling reaction when associated with uh, the, the Aruba sun. Uh, they had given him some steroids in an emergency room in Aruba, and that seemed to help a little bit. Um, uh, but uh, then he went home and got a little bit better. When we talked to his mom a little bit more, it actually seemed like he had in the New Hampshire sun, maybe about an hour to two hours of a grace period before he would start to, to jump up and down and do what they called like a little stinging dance. Um, and he would kind of hide under tree cover for the duration of things like, like recess. Didn't like to be outside very much. And when he did go outside, it'd either be kind of in the morning or at night. Um, uh, they tried to get him to play baseball, but he spent most of the time in the dugout and would cry when he was out playing in the outfield. Um, on physical exam, he, he didn't really have, other than the forehead scar, any scarring. Um, he didn't have any kind of an abnormally large liver, no blistering, no hypertrichosis, no red teeth, you know, really nothing like that, and no abnormal movement in any of his digits. Uh, we kind of had suspected that porphyrins could be in the differential, so we'd ordered some serum porphyrins, and they, they were pretty markedly elevated, and it looked like they were mostly protoporphyrins, um, and so he actually ended up having um, erythropoietic uh, protoporphyria. Um, in, in general, um, there's actually a couple indistinguishable forms of this. Uh, where uh, you, you can have uh, an autosomal recessive defect in uh, ferrochelatase, uh, but you can actually also have another type of mutation in uh, the, uh, the, the first uh, enzyme in the pathway, aminolevulinic acid synthase 2. That's the, the form of the enzyme that's meant to kick into overdrive to support um, you know, intense porphyrin needs in the, in the blood and the liver. Um, and some people have not an inactivating mutation in this, but an activating mutation that, uh, that, that 
puts such an overwhelming load of amino levulinic acid that you get tons of protoporphyrin at the end, more, more than you can use. And that leads to the, the deposition in the skin and the poisoning. So some of these things that seem like they may only have one cause act, actually have more than one. And it's chemically indistinguishable from uh, erythroporetic porphyria. It actually even got its own disease name, um, uh, X-linked uh, erythropoietic porphyria. Um, the, uh, the, the porphyrins can actually precipitate in the bile and, and be made into to stones. Um, you know, typically most people have about a tolerance of a half hour to an hour out in the sun. Uh, it's not really ulcering, uh, ulcerating lesions or scarring. It's more like this edematous uh, kind of a, a phenotype of photosensitivity. There is kind of a rare group of individuals who have very limited enzyme activity who actually progress to fulminant liver failure. But the monitoring is generally liver function studies outside monitoring of the skin. Um, the usual treatment actually in, involves um, avoiding as much sun as you can uh, and uh, using barrier sunscreens that reflect all wavelengths of light. Uh, light filters that sort of block light up to 400 nanometers, which is one of the triggering wavelengths is usually what people use inside the house, but a lot of people don't need that. Um, there is a drug that's kind of in trials right now to help people make more melanin to absorb more of the, uh, the, the, the light before it hits the porphyrins that people have been having some success with because the kids are kind of out of uh, sunlight a lot, giving extra vitamin D is beneficial because there's liver involvement. They usually recommend uh, immunizing for hepatitis A and B. Uh, sometimes because some of these are excreted in the stool, excreting more of them in the stool helps clear them from the body. Um, so cholestyramine is sometimes used to, to kind of suck the, the excessive porphyrins uh, out of the body into the stool um, where they can be uh, sequestered. And um, uh, beta carotene is kind of given in a dose dependent means. And this basically um, uh, it suppresses and neutralizes free radicals that are started by excited porphyrins. So the porphyrins only really get excited. It's the free radicals that are the primary intoxicant in these photosensitive reactions. So light is basically just a, a mixture of wavelengths. Um, uh, and uh, uh, it, photochemistry and quantum chemistry is a lot like a dating app. You either like someone and you say yes, or you don't like them and you say no. If there's enough people that you don't like, doesn't matter the intensity of that light, you know, you're not really going to get excited by them. And um, uh, that's kind of the way it is with, with photochemistry. Critical wavelengths of light are usually what causes trouble. Now, the wavelengths of light that most sunscreens that are absorbed are meant to protect at are the really low ones, like the 200s, the ones that are ultraviolet that cause DNA to get excited and to undergo chemical changes. Really the ones that the porphyrins absorb at are kind of the 400s and the 600s. So that's why the, the absorptive sunscreens don't give any protection at all, um, is because they're, they're aimed to protect at wavelengths that the porphyrins just frankly aren't excited by. Um, so barrier sunscreens like the zinc oxides and the titanium oxides actually reflect all wavelengths. So you don't really have those same issues with absorbing something that, um, uh, that, that, that is not really the, the primary target of the porphyrins. The, the difference between uh, New Hampshire and, and uh, Aruba, which is almost equatorial, while New Hampshire is not equatorial at all, um, it basically comes down to the intensity of the sun. So this was something that was a big concern to the parents, but the intensity of the sun as you get closer to the equator increases. So that was really why uh, New Hampshire, he really had very mild to no symptoms. But when he went to almost equatorial Aruba, then things got very bad very fast. The peak hours of the sun um, are actually kind of between like 10 and 4. So uh, that's kind of why the little ones sort of like to go out in the morning and the evening in kind of avoided time uh, in the middle. If you have somebody who's photosensitive, you know, if it's blistering, um, you know, urine porphyrins are what you want. If it's like this kid who's edematous, RBC protoporphyrins are what you want. Um, sometimes uh, you can just send a genetic panel and sort of get get what you want. Um, the uh, 
Uh, the Mayo website actually has uh, a lot of different um, uh, uh, algorithms um, in, in case you ever have to work something up like this uh, on your own. And uh, they have, you know, kind of all the things that you would need to order. Um, not not an industrial stump uh, for Mayo in this sense, um, uh, but they have a lot of rare labs. So they're a really good resource when you have to figure out things like this. Uh, so the chemistry can be kind of complicated to figure out. So a sequencing panel is usually what you want. Um, uh, and uh, uh, the, the barrier sunscreens are better than the absorbent sunscreens. If indoor lighting is a problem, you can get light filters to modify it and then really try to have the person avoid as much sun uh, as you can. This is another true story of a, of a young lady um, who ended up having an acute porphyria. Uh, she was 25 and uh, you know throughout her life, she hadn't really had trouble with illness, but she noticed really after she hit uh, puberty that she really started to have terrible abdominal pain whenever she would start to get sick. Um, and one of the things that was different about her is that she would get weakness in her arms whenever, you know, she would have these episodes and that weakness was getting worse over time. Uh, no one in her home had these same uh, issues and she'd really need a lot of pain control and some of the people in the ED were actually concerned that she was opiate seeking, um, which obviously turned out not to be the case, um, you know, after her, her porphyria was diagnosed. One of the things about the acute porphyrias is that um, you, you have to really catch them in episode to confirm them chemically. So when the, the, the heme synthetic pathway isn't kicked into overdrive, you, you often don't have the intoxicants in your blood. So people are fine when they're not being poisoned. And then when the demand goes up, then, then they're not fine anymore. So she saw her doctor who was pretty clever and uh, he, he checked her for uh, urine porphyrins and porphyblinogen and, and ALA. And it, her levels were actually normal because she wasn't in crisis. So it got ruled out entirely at that time. Um, she was really concerned not about the abdominal pain, but really the encroaching weakness in her hands that seemed to be getting worse with every, um, you know, vomiting illness that she would have. Uh, you know, she did have kind of a classic course where she had painful periods and uh, in, in sort of the premenstrual period for uh, these disorders is actually where they tend to trigger spontaneously sometimes outside of the realm of illness. And so uh, they put her on a, a progestin based um, oral contraceptive and that exacerbated her disease considerably. Uh, nobody else in her family had any of these symptoms. So they, they really didn't think that there could be any aspect of hereditary illness, but heredity doesn't really help you when, when penetrance is, is less than 10%. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, she kind of had an episode in college where she had, had gone out drinking one night and the alcohol had triggered, um, you know, the heme pathway and, and she had gotten uh, uh, into crisis and, and she got so sick, she never drank again. Uh, she tries to avoid every medication she can, except the sort of the opiates when she she's in crisis for pain. When her, she was uh, out of episode, her weakness would eventually resolve. Um, uh, we had tested her urine uh, when she was in for one of these episodes, and she did have kind of the characteristic analytes, the elevated porphyblinogen and uh, uh, aminolevulinic acid. Uh, kind of the classic test is actually to let the, the, the urine sit for a while until it darkens. This in some ways is sort of um, uh, not that useful because it has to sit for like five hours. Most people don't keep their own urine for that long and definitely hospitals don't usually store urine for that long. So it takes a while to kind of get that classic effect. But, but she definitely had acute uh, intermittent porphyria and her overall um, uh, you know, clinical course was, was pretty classic for that onset after adolescence, um, uh, you know, a medication inducing, especially um, you know, a steroid hormone medications and um, you know, onset after puberty. Uh, the things that you usually try to do is to give heme to inhibit uh, ALAS1, prevent the pathway from ever becoming hyperactive. So she, when she was in that crisis, that's exactly what we gave her by IV. And really within, you know, 24 hours, she was, she was out of crisis 
and uh, didn't have um, uh, you know, any of the long-lasting neurological issues with that episode that she'd had before. And then the other thing that happens is that fasting, as I said before, degrades heme, causing you to need to make more. So you usually give somebody dextrose-containing IV fluids to kind of break the catabolic response and, and stabilize the demand uh, for heme, as well as taking a look at their med record to see if there's anything that could be inducing heme synthesis. Uh, so she was given four grams uh, per day of uh, IV hemen for, for three days and uh, D5 containing fluids by IV. Um, you know, she got opiates as she need to control the pain, but it broke pretty fast with those therapies. Um, and then uh, if it's somebody new that you, you've never seen before and you don't know their med list and you don't know what you can and can't give them, uh, talk to a pharmacist because it is a pharmacogenomic disease. There's a website, porphyriafoundation.com, that actually has all the lists of medications that you can and can't give these patients. And one of the things that uh, is sort of outside what you'd expect is um, abnormal electrolyte effects where you can get hyponatremia and hypomagnesemia and hypochloremia during these episodes. So if you're giving fluid, um, you really have to, to check the electrolytes and make sure that you're using like a normal saline. Um, acute porphyria triggers are viral infections like the flu, um, you know, uh, fasting and diets, uh, alcohol, which induces uh, heme synthesis, different drugs and medications that do the same stress, you know, induces cortisol synthesis, uh, pregnancy. Uh, iron overload can sometimes um, exacerbate, um, you know, the toxicity of heme, uh, and then tobacco um, uh, inhibits uh, some of the cytochromes, and then combined with alcohol is sort of a one-two hit. Uh, medications that are common that can trigger porphyrias are ACE inhibitors, calcium channel blockers, uh, uh, carbamazepine, uh, valproic acid, barbiturates, ketamine, griseofulmin for the fungus. And then for GI pain and constipation and distress, you know, meclopramide gets used relatively frequently and that'll kick somebody into crisis. Um, you know, generally the symptoms that you see are almost everything that, that she had. Um, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, generalized uh, distress, peripheral neuropathy. But because the amino levulinic acid is also a carcinogen, the more of these episodes that somebody has, the higher their risk of developing hepatocarcinoma, hepatocellular carcinoma becomes. So it's something in a differential if you think it's there. You really want to make sure that you prove it or not um, because of the cancer risk, in addition to all the other risks with the neurological side effects. Um, uh, one thing that I think people don't know about this is that it's usually autosomal dominant, but the penetrance is about 10%. So usually family histories are negative. Um, but it can, you can actually get um, a, a recessive form of it that's even worse in his uh, failure to thrive hepatosplenomegaly in, in, in cataracts and in, in significant impairment uh, early on in, uh, in, in the neonatal period in early childhood. Um, the diagnostic analytes is during an attack, um, uh, ALA and uh, porphyblinogen and in the urine porphyrins. Um, uh, the, 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 uh, the ALA and the porphyblinogen and the urine porphyrins are actually not specific for um, uh, a, uh, a acute intermittent porphyria, uh, they can actually be elevated in a lot of the acute porphyrias. But if you think you're dealing with an acute porphyria, that's the best way to tell you if it's there or not. During an episode, um, you know, it's, it's an acute porphyria. And then there's other speciation that you can do with fecal porphyrins um, to kind of figure it out. Uh, you know, certainly heavy metals like lead, you know, inhibits ALA dehydratase. So you get, you know, a really big load of amino levulinic acid. Uh, the intoxication of lead, though, they say that is actually quite different than what you see um, in, in these types of patients. Uh, um, uh, but usually heavy metal screening is kind of recommended. And this is another algorithm uh, that's basically you can find on the Mayo website. If you think you're dealing with an acute porphyria, you can find resources like that there um, kind of in a pinch that'll give you the chemical workup. But sometimes, you know, if you have even a hint that the chemistry is there, ordering a genetic sequencing panel to tell you exactly what's going on is usually your best bet.
Um, so it's uh, the, the biochemistry can be kind of multi-step to sort of cinch something down. A uh, sequencing panel is usually a really good idea. Uh, you know, in a crunch, ALA, porphyblinogen, and urine porphyrins will tell you if you're dealing with an acute porphyria. Um, you know, the pharmacy is a pretty important aspect of this. Um, and, and a lot of these uh, with ALA elevation can give you increased risk of liver cancer. During crisis, uh, control pain, start heman, um, in give somebody food and dextrose containing fluids. Uh, family histories don't usually help you. Um, and, uh, you know, most people that are affected um, are usually female. And uh, uh, usually the premenstrual period is one of the hottest times for people that don't have acute disease to become symptomatic. And people, um, who take um, endogenous progestins are usually at higher risk. Uh, so kind of the, the final points are acute porphyrias are really driven by demand for heme. Um, you know, shut off the pathway and you can help detoxify an acute porphyria. The uh, cutaneous porphyrias um, are usually what you can actually see in the early pediatric patients where acute porphyrias are something that you see in, in full adults in sometimes um, you know, late, late adolescence, but this would be someone you'd see in adolescent clinic. Well, that type of photosensitivity would be someone you would see in a general pediatric clinic. Um, you know, penetrance is usually, like I said, pretty poor. Um, uh, the key to the photosensitive ones is to give barrier uh, sunscreens, uh, beta carotene to neutralize the free radicals in limited sun exposure when you can. Biochemical evaluations to create a path back to a genetic etiology are, are pretty useful. Um, the workups can be kind of cumbersome. So if you get a hint that something is there, uh, sequencing panels in this modern age are usually the fastest way to cinch a diagnosis. Uh, and once again, the porphyriafoundation.com is the website to go to to know in a crunch which you can and can't give somebody with porphyria, uh, especially um, the acute porphyrias. Well, thank you guys very much for your uh, inviting me. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, this has been a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Salazar, Dr. Tucker, and then you know, my old mentors, uh, Dr. Greenstein and um, uh, Dr. Lavalette, of course, uh, Dr. Z. And any questions you guys want, I'll answer at this time. Thank you, uh, Bill. Uh, always very thorough and, uh, and interesting in the morning, begin with all the biochemistry and how passionate you are about it is always uh, amazing. Uh, there, there's a question here from uh, uh, David Brown. Uh, what is the incidence of this diseases? And, and, and David has practiced for a long time. He says, I've never seen a case in 40 years of practice. Have I missed them? You know, I, I think that um, a pediatrician, it would be easy, I think, not to see a lot of them. The, uh, the disease that has the highest incidence is porphyria cutanea tarda, and mostly that's a disease that's induced by, you know, other things. And that's mostly a disease of adulthood. And a lot of these are diseases that onset after the age of 30. The incidence of porphyrias in the pediatric population is actually not that high. The uh, erythropoietic protoporphyria, I think, has the highest incidence in early pediatrics. That's relatively rare. And the photosensitive ones are, are kind of hard to miss. So I think that that's probably kind of the rarity. I think that there are a collection of individuals that we did have with uh, acute intermittent porphyria without a lot of other varieties of the other types of porphyrias that tended to present kind of around like 19 or 20. So they may have been kind of outside of your usual range. And I think it's important to mention because they get included in a lot of pediatric differentials for abdominal pain. Uh, though I, I probably had association with about five true 
Porphyria's um, during my time as a fellow, most of them were kind of like the late childhood, early adult or, or full adult phase. And those two that I presented were the only two who were sort of more kind of in the, the pediatric age range. So it's not something you actually, it's something that comes up in differentials for children with abdominal pain, but it's not something that's, that's usually actually an, an etiology. And that, that's almost as important to mention as, as anything else. But in adulthood, they're believed to be uh, underdiagnosed. And uh, uh, when people have gone looking for them with suspicion, then they end up finding them. And some of the diagnostic problems are exactly what that lady had. You know, she was tested for porphyria. Like they did look at the correct analytes, but they didn't look at the right time. So the biochemical investigation that sometimes, you know, is very clever, sometimes can actually obscure your ability to get to a true diagnosis. Thanks, uh, Bill. Uh, I do have one last question that we have to sign off, uh, Bill. Hydroxychloroquine, which has been obviously in the news for, for crazy reasons for COVID, uh, any use for that for preventing breakthroughs in individuals with, uh, with porphyria? Well, that's, a, that's actually a really good question. And uh, for the most part, in, uh, I think, congenital erythropoietic porphyria, there is a role for it. So uh, hydroxychloroquine uh, is used to help clear heme uh, from, from the body. And, it, and it's really only used in a couple of the adult onset porphyrias, of which uh, congenital erythropoietic porphyria is one and it's kind of found to to blunt some of the symptoms but it's not really of much use um in uh kind of the pediatric cutaneous porphyrias and in acute intermittent porphyria um it's uh i think the episodes are transient enough uh that that usually uh hemen and um uh, a caloric support um are 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 used uh, uh but but there there is a role for that in in some specific porphyrias great thank you uh so so bill uh, and joe thank you very much for participating in our lecture today i think uh, dr greenstein, greenstein would have been uh, quite impressed with what you have accomplished uh, and followed his uh, his legacy i also want to remind everyone that this friday we have the ask the experts with dr john shriver and allison Crippo. Uh, It'll be fall sports and the Delta variant. I think you'll enjoy that. And then next week's Grand Rounds is uh, Dr. Bill Zemsky and Taryn, uh, um, in, in the, one, of the, one of our uh, advanced practitioners in the group, will be talking about that very important topic. So again, thank you for joining us. Be well, be safe, and we'll see you again on Friday. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at ConnecticutChildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.